from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, it's our fifth episode of Liner Notes, our musical segment where local artists walk us through the process of writing and composing one of their original songs. But first, last Friday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. And even though these days the term never forget seems to be part of public discourse, it wasn't that long ago that discussions of the Holocaust were often repressed or even discouraged. Back in 1961, many survivors were caught in the crosshairs between publicly acknowledging what they'd been through and blending into the larger community when a neo-Nazi hate bus made its way to New Orleans. This ultimately led to a confrontation between survivors and neo-Nazis in an event that was emblematic of increasing support for civil rights among Jews. In 1997, Lawrence Powell wrote about this very confrontation and its ripple effects in his book, Troubled Memory, Anne Levy, The Holocaust, and David Duke's Louisiana. The Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University and author joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. In May of 1961, neo-Nazi George Lincoln Rockwell led a hate ride to New Orleans. Can you give us a little bit of background here? Who was this man? Why was he riding a vehicle literally labeled hate bus? And why did he come to New Orleans? He was the son of a famous comedian who was actually friendly with uh, Groucho Marx, among others. I think even Jack Benny. And he was a, a World War II veteran as well. But somehow he, he became uh, intensely anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi. And he's credited with founding the American Nazi Party and revising, resurrecting uh, Nazism in the United States. Uh, as for uh, the hate bus, uh, this was a, uh, his answer to the freedom rides that were you know, descending on the South. And all of them, their final des- ultimate destination was supposed to be New Orleans, because this is where the U.S. Fifth, uh, Fifth Circuit Court uh, of Appeals was located. Now, none of those buses arrived because they were either waylaid or attacked or firebombed or, or the, uh, the Freedom Riders were arrested and detained in Jackson, Mississippi. But the hate ride, the hate bus of, that George Lincoln Rockwell sent to New Orleans did arrive, although Rockwell himself came by plane, not by bus. Mm. And by the way, it was not a, a bus, it was a Volkswagen bus. Wow. Well, around this time, what did the survivor community look like in New Orleans? How big was it, and how did they fit into both the larger Jewish community and just larger community in general? Well, it was not a large community. They called themselves, they self, self-identified as New Americans. Uh, which said pretty much says all you need to know about what their ambitions were for themselves and especially for their children, the second generation. Uh, I would say it was less than 100, maybe about 80 or 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did they fit in? Well, it was kind of uneasily. I would say two-thirds, an estimated two-thirds of um, the Jewish community in New Orleans at that time were, were highly secular, they were Reformed, German Reformers, Sephardic uh, uh, Jews. They had made over the years a conscious effort to deflect the waves of Russian Jews who came to the United States around the turn of the, of the last century. And uh, so they felt, I think the, the, the survivors felt 
uh, even more like a kind of an odd man out. They were embraced and supported, but they were not, they were in, but not fully of the community. And yeah. I think they were self-conscious of that. Of course, 1961 is also the year that Adolf Eichmann, the former SS officer, was tried for the crimes he committed in the Holocaust. How did this sort of reignite conversations about the Holocaust, both in New Orleans and around the world? Well, it just brought it all back to the surface. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember seeing that on television. There were news clips on it on television in a grainy black and white, but it was still pretty stunning, and even though I was a a teenager at the time, uh, you know, you couldn't help but be affected by it unless you had a hole in your soul. And with the survivors, it was like being brought face to face with memories that you not so much remember, but relive. And uh, they were not sure first how to handle it. I mean, they began, I know some of them, like the woman I wrote about, her mother, uh, sat down with a, a seminary student, the next door neighbor, and with her, her young son as well, and began to dictate a, a memoir that was typed out on this Underwood typewriter, very, uh, a lot of, uh, with, with a, uh, a great deal of effort. With this hate ride coming to town, this was almost like a, uh, not just a slap in the face, but a kind of a, you know, drawn daggers. We're speaking with Lawrence Powell, Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University. So before we get to the question about Exodus, I just want to quickly back up for, for one minute. Once New Orleanians got word that George Wa- that George Rockwell and his hate bus were coming, how did they respond? More specifically, how did the Holocaust survivors respond? In your article, you write that some of them first gathered in another survivor's butcher shop. Can you just tell me a little bit about their organizing? Yeah, it was in Ralph Rosenblatt's uh, uh, butcher shop, as a matter of fact. And they were pretty upset. Um, They were probably in the prime of their life in their 20s or 30s, in their 30s. and this just became as as an intense provocation. And I think what's what more troubling for them is the way in which the organized Jewish community here responded. Their idea was that we're not going to call attention to this guy. We're not going to give him the oxygen of publicity. We, we regard um, civil rights and freedom of speech and the rest as almost a cultural value. We're not going to interject ourselves into it. And this led to a big confrontation with the, the new Americans, especially the young men. And some of them were pretty uh, pretty quick to fly off the handle, if you'd say that. But there was a lot of strong emotion flowing. Well, by the time that Rockwell and his hate bus got to town, what happened? It was kind of biblical, really, in a, in a sense that we had one of those biblical thunderstorms. And... Uh, when uh, just as the uh, about seven or eight of these guys with iron pipes and baseball bats began to move toward Civic Theater on Burrell Street and confront the few, the handful of of uh, stormtroopers, as Rockwell called them, uh, Joe Jerusalem's forces just swept it and and carted off the uh, the Nazis. And so, and what the, the survivors did, I think, feeling that they had accomplish what they set out to accomplish was buy tickets and go in and enjoy the movie. Yeah, well, we should talk a little bit about that movie. The film that actually the hate bus showed up at 
to protest was the film Exodus, a historical drama about the founding of Israel that's largely been viewed as Zionist propaganda. Jews are and have always been divided on the state of Israel. So what were the attitudes towards this movie among Jews in New Orleans at the time? And did that impact the protest at all? Well, I that's a tough question for me to answer. My my best guess is that the larger reform community was probably somewhat indifferent, if not uh, uh, not hostile, but you know, thought this was not something they wanted to embrace. I don't think there was a large transition to support for Israel until the Yom Kippur War, maybe just before it. But that was a big a big turning point. I mean, certainly for the survivors, I think the founding of the state of Israel, which happened while most of them were in DP camps in Germany, was a big deal. And I'm sure some of them thought that that might have been a place they would like to have located because, as Ann Levy said, the woman I wrote about, at least there she would never feel different. You know, you grow up feeling different and therefore uh, um, vulnerable. Uh, it would be nice to be in a place where you didn't feel that way, that you would be like everyone else. Yeah. Well, you write in your article that at this time, many Jews felt like they needed to take a strong stance in favor of the civil rights movement, but the community was not as a whole unified on this. So how do you think that this episode changed the way that some Jews in New Orleans saw their role in the civil rights movement? Uh, again, a tough question. And my best guess would be that the biggest impact would be on the second generation who are already thinking about or trying to kind of reconcile the experiences and merely put them down for good uh, with the same kinds of prejudicial discrimination that they had to live with every day. It took a while, I think, for the for the mainstream Jewish community to feel comfortable with, you know, with with the with the freedom rides and the, and the sit-ins and so on. I mean, I, some of the attitude was, well, these are just Yankees and they just don't understand what we're up against down here and that that sort of thing. Uh, so I think probably the change on that front in the community at large probably happened gradually then suddenly. Before I let you go. In your article, you write that this hate ride and the rise of neo-Nazism, quote, reawakened long repressed memories, triggering the inner conflict which so many survivors feel between the need to forget and the obligation to remember, between the Southern Jews' instinct to blend in and the survivors' impulse to bear witness, there was little room for compromise. How do you think that this event changed, elevated, or even destigmatized what it meant to be a Holocaust survivor in New Orleans? I think I, I try to explore that question uh, in my book, which is that chapter, I mean, that article you're referring to is a chapter or remodel it into a chapter in my book, Troubled Memory. And I do think that uh, eventually the whole identification of, of the Holocaust with uh, with race, uh, racial strife in, in the United States became even clearer in the minds of a lot of folks. I mean, this is, after all, I think you could say that, you know, the Holocaust is a reminder, an ugly reminder of where an ethnic or racial slur can lead. And I think bringing those, juxtaposing these two events uh, was a, a dramatic way to, to make that point. And I think when David Duke kind of, kind of burst upon the scene, that was even uh, a, a more powerful impetus to to see these two 
world historical events in, uh, in the same lens. Lawrence Powell is Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University and author of Troubled Memory, Anne Levy, The Holocaust, and David Dukes, Louisiana. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Today, we are bringing you our fifth episode of Liner Notes, our segment that highlights local Louisiana musicians as they walk us through their songwriting and composition process. Today, Baton Rouge artist Dalton Hamilton, also known as Band Geek, tells us about his song Alone that he wrote, performed, and engineered for his album Black Moth. This episode of Liner Notes was produced and edited by Aubrey Purcell. I chose to create this song starting with the chorus to immediately portray the feeling of being alone. It's a long way home. I don't know my wife. Somebody come out and help me. Save me from myself. I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be alone. It's a pretty direct introduction, not just for the song, but for the whole theme of the project. It kind of ties into being alone by saying like, hey, look, I'm alone right now. I don't know my wealth. Uh, I didn't know I'm as good as I am. I've been living a humble man's life for so long. And uh, it took my brother along with several friends and family to go, why aren't you releasing music? (laughs) Why aren't you pursuing this? You're obviously good at it. You obviously spend a lot of time doing this. I'm now going on about 11 years of producing instrumentals and working for others. And it took me that long to be comfortable enough to go, hey, take a listen to this. Tell me what you think. It's a long way home. I don't know my wealth. Somebody come out and help me. Save me from myself. I don't want to be lonely. So in my high frequency range, I wanted to add a sense of coldness. The way of doing that was definitely by spiking the treble end of the reverb specifically. Along with the natural delay that was going on, which is echo for people who are listening, you know, you have to have that call and response, not just to add that feeling, but to give you the feeling of being alone. Someone in the Grand Canyon, they're going to yell and the only person that's going to respond is themselves. Specifically, I wrote this song because of depression from losing our child. A year before last, uh, me and my fiance, we lost we lost a, a, a newborn. A lot of working on this album was me working out that depression. Going into that, I, I just really wanted that the listener to understand uh, there should be never an option of taking your life. That's the that's the final objective of the listen, that it should never come to that because it'll be it'll be gone. It'll be gone in a little while. To be honest, man, um, me and my fiance were both at that level at one point. Obviously, we have our child, uh, Ezra. Uh, that is the only reason. At one point, we felt that we didn't do it. But as time went, it got better. I'm here today. I feel way better. Just um, getting this album out 
helped not just me, but it helped her as well. I don't want to be alone. Please stay on the phone. Cops behind me driving slow. Quarters on cold is chrome. Them chromosomes in my bones. They telling me to stay strong. What I'm feeling is legit. Don't quit healing all that hurt to be gone. What this is is temporary. Kind of scary. Don't believe in fairy tales. I'm living hell, but bailing out would be... They overlook me, but I'm standing here. My presence is necessary, just like the man you fear. The very first line in the verse mentions being pulled over by cops. Being someone who has found myself in many situations like that in my life, having that feeling of shaking, you know, while holding the steering wheel of my car and knowing, why did they pull me over? <laughs> did I do something? It's, it's, it's the same effect as getting called to the principal's office and you're walking down the hallway wondering, what, what did I do? During my verses, I even, when mixing the song, I chose to leave in a lot of airiness and openness, including a lot of exhales and, you know, inhales, um, just to portray that feeling of sweating, of anxiety with really no way of seeing or foreseeing where that was going to end, uh, really uh, hit home for me. And I had to make other people feel that by adding that extra stress. The line says, mi corazón cold is chrome, the chromosomes in my bones telling me to move on. Meaning all of this other stuff going on in my head, trying to get over things, um, I still have to deal with the present. And as that intro verse progresses, I kind of go into a line of saying, this is only temporary. No matter what, how bad it is, it doesn't matter. Time is the healing agent, you know? They overlook me, but I'm standing here. My presence is necessary, just like the man you fear. So what that basically says, it's, it's kind of a shot at my father. There is a necessary presence of fear that you're supposed to have from your parents. Not, not just raw fear, but it's more of an accountability aspect. So meaning like, hey, if I'm not here, you know, just like my father wasn't here, what am I going to do? What is my son going to do? Is he going to have to deal with what I dealt with? You know, my father didn't commit suicide, but um, he definitely just chose to not be in my life. I wouldn't dare wish that upon my child. Them constellations ain't the same when you from another galaxy. Them horoscopes, them, they just another fallacy to put me in low gravity just so they can manage me. They can't even balance me. They can't even handle me. But I'm more than just a canopy for the fallen. I swear they seen it all until that capsule dissolving the solvent. That's more problems for the solvent. You keep on pushing till they all in. I pardon the ignorance because the bliss is gone. One of my personal signatures to the way I write is obviously I love space. Uh, I'm a science nerd from another world, you know. <laughs> I really wanted you to understand as a listener that I am not, I'm not your average Joe. I'm not uh, your everyday black man. I wanted people to really know I'm from another place. One of my lines was, constellations ain't the same when you're from another galaxy. And just pondering on that line, it's like, man, he really is alone. He is from a, even constellations looking up at the sky are different for him. You know, he's not, yeah, there's no Sagittarius where he's from. I'm a guitar player, right? And one of the hardest things for me to do is to create a song without my guitar. And um, in hip hop, you know, it's kind of a, it's not really taboo to use a guitar, but not many people are capable of playing guitar and rapping at the same time. One of the biggest things for me was to sit my guitar away from me and try to create in a different corner, so to speak. Um, with that being said, I use 
guitar effects a lot on my synthesizers, <laughs> my vocals. I experiment a lot as if I were on stage with my pedal board just to create an effect that I've never heard or not just heard, but never felt before. I really wanted to have that original flair, um, especially coming out of Baton Rouge where most most hip hop and rap is, um, it's street rap. I wanna come from a conscious perspective. I use a prime distortion pedal in very minuscule amounts on my vocals, not just on my direct vocal line, but on my actual reverb. Uh, return just to kind of grit up the reverb a little bit and take some of the guitar effect edge off of it as well. It's a long way home. I don't know my wife. Somebody come out and help me save me from myself. So like I when I sit in in my in my studio, I'm sitting next to my microphone with this this pedal on my desk, <laughs> and I'm pressing it with my thumb, <laughs> which feels awkward already. And I'm just talking and babbling into the microphone until I find a good blend. I don't want to give everybody my formula, but you know, <laughs> I feel like it definitely added a different, a different level of melancholy. In this song specifically, I wanted extremely heavy 808s. Like culturally, I really wanted heavy 808 to show that, hey, I am a rapper. I am from the South. 808 is um, a sub bass frequency that's typically used in most hip hop nowadays in a lot of pop and R&B. It's typically used to replace a bass guitar. I really wanted this song to have a really heavy 808 punch, but still allowing room for the track to breathe as well. I'm a synthesizer guy, I'm a guitar player horn player, if there's not balance in those two on the bottom and the high, there's no room for me to breathe. It's a long way home. I don't know my wife, somebody come out and help me. Save me from myself, I don't wanna be lonely. I don't wanna be alone, yeah. I don't wanna be alone, please stay on the phone. Cops behind me driving slow, cortisone, code is chrome. Them chromosomes in my bones, they telling me to stay strong. What I'm feeling is legit, don't quit healing all that hurt to be gone. What this is, is temporary, kinda scary. Don't believe in fairy tales, I'm living hell, but bailing out would be They overlook me, but I'm standing here. My presence is necessary, just like the man you fear. It's a long way home. I don't know my wife, somebody come out and help me. Save me from myself, I don't wanna be lonely. I don't wanna be alone. Yeah. Uh, them constellations uh, ain't the same when you from another galaxy. Them horoscopes, them they just another fallacy to put me in low gravity just so they can manage me. They can't even balance me. They can't even handle me. But I'm more than just a canopy for the fallen. Guess where they seen it all until that capsule dissolving the solvent. That's more problems for the solvent. You keep on pushing till they all in. Pardon the ignorance, cause the bliss is gone. It's a long way home. I don't know my wife, somebody come out and help me. Save me from myself. I don't wanna be lonely. I don't wanna be alone. Way home. I don't know my wife, somebody come out and help me. Save me from myself, I don't wanna be lonely. I don't wanna be alone. Yeah. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University, Lawrence Powell, 
and Baton Rouge musician Dalton Hamilton. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.